Section 2 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1 F, Section 2, Chapter 63, Part 2. Clarendon not only behaved with wisdom and justice in the office of Chancellor, all the counsels which he gave the king tended equally to promote the interest of prince and people. Charles, accustomed in his exile to pay entire deference to the judgment of this faithful servant, continued still to submit to his direction and for some time no minister was ever possessed of more absolute authority. He moderated the forward zeal of the royalists and tempered their appetite for revenge. With the opposite party he endeavored to preserve inviolate all the king's engagements. He kept an exact register of the promises which had been made for any service. He employed all his industry to fulfill them. This good minister was now nearly allied to the royal family. His daughter, Anne Hyde, a woman of spirit and fine accomplishments, had hearkened while abroad to the addresses of the Duke of York, and under promise of marriage had secretly admitted him to her bed. Her pregnancy appeared soon after the restoration, and though many endeavoured to dissuade the king from consenting to so unequal an alliance, Charles, in pity to his friend and minister, who had been ignorant of these engagements, permitted his brother to marry her, Clarington expressed great uneasiness at the honor which he had obtained, and said that, by being elevated so much above his rank, he thence dreaded a more sudden downfall. Most circumstances of Clarendon's administration have been met with applause. His maxims alone in the conduct of ecclesiastical politics have by many been deemed the effect of prejudices narrow and bigoted. Had the jealousy of royal power prevailed so far with the convention parliament as to make them restore the king with strict limitations, there is no question but the establishment of Presbyterian discipline had been one of the conditions most rigidly insisted on. Not only that form of ecclesiastical government is more favorable to liberty than to royal power, it was likewise, on its own account, agreeable to the majority of the House of Commons, and suited their religious principles. But as the impatience of the people, the danger of delay, the general disgust towards faction, and the authority of Monk, had prevailed over that jealous project of limitations, the full settlement of the hierarchy, together with the monarchy, was a necessary and infallible consequence. All the royalists were zealous for that mode of religion. The merits of the Episcopal clergy towards the king, as well as their sufferings on that account, had been great. The laws which established bishops and liturgy were as yet unrepealed by legal authority, and any attempt of the Parliament by new acts to give the superiority to Presbyterianism had been sufficient to involve the nation again in blood and confusion. Moved by these views, the Commons had wisely postponed the examination of all religious controversy, and had left the settlement of the Church to the King and to the ancient laws. The king at first used great moderation in the execution of the laws. Nine bishops still remained alive, and these were immediately restored to their sees. All rejected clergy recovered their livings. The liturgy, a form of worship decent, and not without beauty, was again admitted into the churches. 
but at the same time a declaration was issued in order to give contentment to the presbyterians and preserve an air of moderation and neutrality in this declaration the king promised that he would provide suffragan bishops for the larger dioceses that the prelates should all of them be regular and constant preachers that they should not confer ordination or exercise any jurisdiction without the advice and assistance of presbyters chosen by the diocese that such alteration should be made in the liturgy as would render it totally unexceptionable that in the meantime the use of that mode of worship should not be imposed on such as were unwilling to receive it and that the surplice, the cross in baptism and bowing at the name of jesus should not be rigidly insisted on this declaration was issued by the king as head of the church and he plainly assumed in many parts of it a legislative authority in ecclesiastical matters but the english government though more exactly defined by late contest was not as yet reduced in every particular to the strict limits of law and if ever prerogative was justifiably employed it seemed to be on the present occasion when all parts of the state were torn with past convulsions and required the moderating hand of the chief magistrate to reduce them to their ancient order but though these appearances of neutrality were maintained and a mitigated episcopacy only seemed to be insisted on it was far from the intention of the ministry always to preserve like regard to the presbyterians the madness of the fifth monarchy men afforded them a pretence for departing from it venner a desperate enthusiast who had often conspired against cromwell having by his zealous lectures inflamed his own imagination and that of his followers issued forth at their head into the streets of london they were to the number of sixty completely armed believed themselves invulnerable and invincible and firmly expected the same success which had attended gideon and other heroes of the old testament every one at first fled before them one unhappy man who being questioned said he was for god and king charles was instantly murdered by them they went triumphantly from street to street everywhere proclaiming king jesus who they said was their invisible leader at length the magistrates having assembled some train bands made an attack upon them they defended themselves with order as well as valor and after killing many of the assailants they made a regular retreat into cane wood near hampstead next morning they were chased thence by a detachment of the guards but they ventured again to invade the city which was not prepared to receive them after committing great disorder and traversing almost every street of that immense capital they retired into a house which they were resolute to defend to the last extremity being surrounded and the house untiled they were fired upon from every side and they still refused quarter the people rushed in upon them and seized the few who were alive these were tried condemned and executed and to the last they persisted in affirming that if they were deceived it was the lord that had deceived them clarendon and the ministry took occasion from this insurrection to infer the dangerous spirit of the presbyterians and of all the sectaries but the madness of the attempt sufficiently proved that it had been undertaken by no concert and never could have proved dangerous the well-known hatred too which prevailed between the presbyterians and the other sects should have removed the former from all suspicion of any concurrence in the enterprise but as a pretense was wanted besides their old demerits for justifying the intended rigors against all of them this reason however slight was greedily laid hold of 
Affairs in Scotland hastened with still quicker steps than those in England towards a settlement and a compliance with the king. It was deliberated in the English council whether that nation should be restored to its liberty, or whether the forts erected by Cromwell should not still be upheld, in order to curb the mutinous spirit by which the Scots in all ages had been so much governed. Lauderdale, who from the Battle of Worcester to the Restoration had been detained prisoner in the Tower, had considerable influence with the king, and he strenuously opposed this violent measure. He represented that it was the loyalty of the Scottish nation which had engaged them in an opposition to the English rebels, and to take advantage of the calamities into which, on that account, they had fallen, would be regarded as the highest injustice and ingratitude, that the spirit of that people was now fully subdued by the servitude under which the usurpers had so long held them, and would of itself yield to any reasonable compliance with their legal sovereign if, by this means, they recovered their liberty and independence, that the attachment of the Scots towards their king, whom they regarded as their native prince, was naturally much stronger than that of the English, and would afford him a sure resource in case of any rebellion among the latter. That republican principles had long been and still were very prevalent within his southern subjects, and might again menace the throne with new tumults and resistance. That the time would probably come when the king, instead of desiring to see English garrisons in Scotland, would be better pleased to have Scottish garrisons in England, who, supported by English pay, would be fond to curb the seditious genius of that opulent nation and that a people such as the Scots, governed by a few nobility, would more easily be reduced to submission under monarchy than one like the English, who breathed nothing but the spirit of democratical equality. These views induced the king to disband all the forces in Scotland, and to raise all the forts which had been erected. General Middleton, created Earl of that name, was sent commissioner to the Parliament, which was summoned. A very compliant spirit was there discovered in all orders of men. The commissioner had even sufficient influence to obtain an act, annulling at once all laws which had passed since the year 1633, on pretext of the violence which, during that time, had been employed against the king and his father, in order to procure their assent to these statutes. This was a very large, if not an unexampled, concession, and, together with many dangerous limitations, overthrew some useful barriers which had been erected to the Constitution. But the tide was now running strongly towards monarchy, and the Scottish nation plainly discovered that their past resistance had proceeded more from the turbulence of their aristocracy and the bigotry of their ecclesiastics than from any fixed passion towards civil liberty. The lords of articles were restored, with some other branches of prerogative, and royal authority fortified with more plausible claims and pretenses was, in its full extent, re-established in that kingdom. The prelacy, likewise, by abrogating of every statute enacted in favor of presbytery, was thereby tacitly restored, and the king deliberated what use he should make of this concession. Lauderdale, who at bottom was a passionate zealot against episcopacy, endeavored to persuade him that the Scots, if gratified in this favorite point of ecclesiastical government, would, in every other demand, be entirely compliant with the king. Charles, though he had not so much attachment to prelacy as had influenced his father and grandfather, had suffered such indignities from the Scottish Presbyterians that he ever bore them a hearty aversion. 
He said to Lauderdale that Presbyterianism, he thought, was not a religion for a gentleman, and he could not consent to its further continuance in Scotland. Middleton, too, and his other ministers persuaded him that the nation in general was so disgusted with the violence and tyranny of the ecclesiastics that any alteration of church government would be universally grateful, and Clarendon, as well as Ormond, dreading that the Presbyterian sect, if legally established in Scotland, would acquire authority in England and Ireland, seconded the application of these ministers. The resolution was therefore taken to restore prelacy a measure afterwards attended with many and great inconveniences. But whether in this resolution Charles chose not the lesser evil, it is very difficult to determine. Sharp, who had been commissioned by the Presbyterians in Scotland to manage their interest with the king, was persuaded to abandon that party, and, as a reward for his compliance, was created Archbishop of St. Andrews. The conduct of ecclesiastical affairs was chiefly entrusted to him, and as he was esteemed a traitor and a renegade by his old friends, he became on that account, as well as from the violence of his conduct, extremely obnoxious to them. Charles had not promised to Scotland any such indemnity as he had insured to England by the declaration of Brada, and was deemed more political for him to hold over men's heads for some time the terror of punishment till they should have made the requisite compliances with the new government. Though neither the king's temper nor plan of administration led him to severity, some examples, after such a bloody and triumphant rebellion, seemed necessary, and the Marquis of Argyle and one Guthrie were pitched on as the victims. Two acts of indemnity, one passed by the late king in 1641, another by the present in 1651, formed, it was thought, invincible obstacles to the punishment of Argyle, and barred all inquiry into that part of his conduct which might justly be regarded as most exceptionable. Nothing remained but to try him for his compliance with the usurpation, a crime common to him with the whole nation, and such a one as the most loyal and affectionate subject might frequently, by violence, be obliged to commit. To make this compliance appear the more voluntary and hearty, there were produced in court letters which he had written to Albemarle, while that general commanded in Scotland, and which contained expressions of the most cordial attachment to the established government. But besides the general indignation excited by Albemarle's discovery of this private correspondence, men thought that even the highest demonstrations of affection might, during jealous times, be exacted as a necessary mark of compliance from a person of such distinction as Argyle, and could not by any equitable construction imply the crime of treason. The Parliament, however, scrupled not to pass sentence upon him, and he died with great constancy and courage. As he was universally known to have been the chief instrument of the past disorders and civil wars, the irregularity of his sentence, and several iniquitous circumstances in the method of conducting his trial, seemed on that account to admit of some apology. Lord Lorne, son of Argyle, having ever preserved his loyalty, obtained a gift of the forfeiture. Guthrie was a seditious preacher, and had personally affronted the king. His punishment gave surprise to nobody. Sir Archibald Johnstone of Warriston was attainted and fled, but was seized in France about two years after, brought over, and executed. He had been very active during all the late disorders, and was even suspected of a secret correspondence with the English regicides. Besides these instances of compliance in the Scottish Parliament, 
they voted an additional revenue to the king of forty thousand pounds a year to be levied by way of excise a small force was purposed to be maintained by this revenue in order to prevent like confusions with those to which the kingdom had been hitherto exposed an act was also passed declaring the covenant unlawful and its obligation void and null in england the civil distinction seemed to be abolished by the lenity and equality of charles's administration cavalier and roundhead were heard of no more all men seemed to concur in submitting to the king's lawful prerogatives and in cherishing the just privileges of the people and of parliament theological controversy alone still subsisted and kept alive some sparks of that flame which had thrown the nation into combustion while catholics independents and other sectaries were content with entertaining some prospect of toleration prelacy and presbytery struggled for the superiority and the hopes and fears of both parties kept them in agitation a conference was held in the savoy between twelve bishops and twelve leaders among the presbyterian ministers with an intention at least on pretence of bringing about an accommodation between the parties the surplicy the cross in baptism the kneeling at the sacrament the bowing at the name of jesus were anew canvassed and the ignorant multitude were in hopes that so many men of gravity and learning could not fail after deliberate argumentation to agree in all points of controversy they were surprised to see them separate more inflamed than ever and more confirmed in their several prejudices to enter into particulars would be superfluous disputes concerning religious forms are in themselves the most frivolous of any and merit attention only so far as they have influence on the peace and order of civil society the king's declaration had promised that some endeavors should be used to effect a comprehension of both parties and charles's own indifference with regard to all such questions seemed a favorable circumstance for the execution of that project the partisans of a comprehension said that the presbyterians as well as the prelatists having felt by experience the fatal effects of obstinacy and violence were now well disposed towards an amicable agreement that the bishops by relinquishing some part of their authority and dispensing with the most exceptionable ceremonies would so gratify their adversaries as to obtain their cordial and affectionate compliance and unite the whole nation in one faith and one worship that by obstinately insisting on forms in themselves insignificant an air of importance was bestowed on them and men were taught to continue equally obstinate in rejecting them that the presbyterian clergy would go every reasonable length rather than by parting with their livings expose themselves to a state of beggary at best of dependence and that if their pride were flattered by some seeming alterations and a pretence given them for affirming that they had not abandoned their former principles nothing further was wanting to produce a thorough union between those two parties which comprehended the bulk of the nation it was alleged on the other hand that the difference between religious sects was founded not on principle but on passion and till the irregular affections of men could be corrected it was in vain to expect by compliances to obtain a perfect unanimity and comprehension that the more insignificant the objects of dispute appeared with the more certainty it might be inferred that the real ground of dissension was different from that which was universally pretended that the love of novelty the pride of augmentation the pleasure of making proselytes and the obstinacy of contradiction would forever give rise to sects and disputes 
nor was it possible that such a source of dissension could ever by any concessions be entirely exhausted that the church by departing from ancient practices and principles would tacitly acknowledge herself guilty of error and lose that reverence so requisite for preserving the attachment of the multitude and that if the present concessions which was more than probable should prove ineffectual greater must still be made and in the issue discipline would be despoiled of all its authority and worship of all its decency without obtaining that end which had been so fondly sought for by these dangerous indulgences the ministry were inclined to give the preference to the latter arguments and were more confirmed in that intention by the disposition which appeared in the parliament lately assembled the royalist and zealous churchmen were at present the popular party in the nation and seconded by the efforts of the court had prevailed in most elections not more than fifty-six members of the presbyterian party had obtained seats in the lower house and these were not able either to oppose or retard the measures of the majority monarchy therefore and episcopacy were now exalted to as great power and splendor as they had lately suffered misery and depression sir edward turner was chosen speaker an act was passed for the security of the king's person and government to intend or devise the king's imprisonment or bodily harm or deposition or levying war against him was declared during the lifetime of his present majesty to be high treason to affirm him to be a papist or heretic or to endeavor by speech or writing to alienate his subjects affections from him these offences were made sufficient to incapacitate the person guilty from holding any employment in church or state to maintain that the long parliament is not dissolved or that either or both houses without the king are possessed of legislative authority or that the covenant is binding was made punishable by the penalty of primineri end of section two chapter sixty three part two recording by jim dennison j i m d e n i s o n dot i can voice dot com